What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark State. And as always, a huge thank you to those people who keep this podcast on the road. That includes the academies in the Bestseller Academy and our patrons over on Patreon. We've got two new patrons this week. Welcome, everyone. Please, Salby. Just one word, Salby, like sure, Madonna. I love it. And Olga Mateev. Thank you to Salby and Olga. You, like them, you can you can keep this podcast going. You can get access to all sorts of fun stuff. If you're a chart topper supporter and patron, you've got access to, I think we're coming to about 130 deep dives now. And we've got some amazing ones. We had one uh, just uh, last week on police procedures. We've got some amazing stuff coming up. I'm booking some very special guests for deep dives uh, in the near future. And it's just a great resource for those 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 little things you just want to know a little bit more about so uh go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support to find out more mr d how are you i'm doing absolutely brilliant i'm doing i'm loving loving the time of year and it's a busy time of year isn't it spring cleaning yes but also it seems like your diary is getting rather chocker blocker <laughs> I'm actually really grateful we can we can do this podcast, Mike. You're showing up for me every now and again, like so we can record like crazy <laughs> stuff going on just in the last week. Tell us about your visit to to Manchester University. Oh, I loved it, absolutely loved it. Well, I was invited by uh, Kylie Dunbar, who's been on the podcast before, wonderful uh, romance author. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check out her stuff. But she teaches um, genre and creative writing at. Uh, Manchester uh, University. And I went, went up there to give a talk to the students up there because essentially they finished the course, they've written a novel and they're about to go out there and find agents and find publishers. And I did a, a talk basically that starts, what what now? What do I do now? And it talks about all the different options you've got. So uh, I spent ages putting the thing together. So I thought actually what might be fun is if I do it for academates on the academy and supporters of the podcast over on the BXP team. So if you're a supporter of po- the podcast, you'll get an invite to come along. Uh, I'll be doing that presentation. There'll be a Q&A afterwards. It's all online. Uh, it'd be lots of fun, I think. it's um, It certainly provoked a lot of debate in Manchester on that. And then, uh, yeah, it was really good fun. Really good Excellent. Fun. So a great opportunity for people to come along and like try out the Academy and, uh, and and meet some of the Academy members as well. So look out for an invite if you're part of the, if you're a patron and a member of the Academy or on the BXP team. And uh, yeah, it should be absolutely fun. Crazy Zoom Zoom call with no doubt many, many people. But yeah, I'll, I'm really looking forward to that. And you also met up with some old friends as well up in Manchester. Yeah, I met an old school friend of mine, Ian Ball. Now, Ian, right, okay. I brought this up. Uh, because uh, I used to sit with Ian in registration and we both loved Terry Pratchett. And Ian said to me, there's this other author you should read, Robert Rankin. 
and I fell in love with Robert's writing. And when I became a bookseller, I invited Robert to come to Waterstones and Epsom to give a talk. And I met Robert uh, for the first time. I said, hello, Robert. Um, I love your writing. And uh, I'm, on, I'm on a bit, I'm writing. Uh, I haven't finished anything yet, but uh, I want to be a writer one day. And Robert stood up and he gave a talk and he was really entertaining. And he said, and my friend over there, Mark, who's a writer, and I felt like I'd been struck by lightning. You know, we've talked about that little affirmation, that little thing that people get with so Ian introduced me to Robert. Robert gave me that affirmation. I've, I've, you know, I love Robert to bits for that. So uh, that was, it was just, I felt like the circle was complete. You know, they're always doing a book event. I did a wonderful event uh, at the Manchester Blackwells uh, store, which was just wonderful. And um, Cueve, uh, Cueve McDonnell was uh, the MC, and he was really entertaining. It was just a terrific evening and a big thank you to everyone who came along it was really good fun really oh, good fun. brilliant stuff and is that that moment of affirmation that's something that's so important isn't it i think everyone yeah. who's reached a certain point in their career or their journey as a writer they can always pinpoint it might have been the english teacher in grade four or mm. year seven or it might have been like you say a, a, i mean in, I've, I've heard a lot of people actually we've encouraged people to do this we did a whole th- thing on this in the academy about this idea of the next time you fill out a form and it asks you for your occupation will you dare write down the word writer, writer or author yeah. and we had a load of people do it and they said oh my gosh it completely changed my mindset <laughs> so we put we put that out to everyone listening today as a little kind of a, a little tip is to, to try that and see how it sits and see how it feels because sometimes you you that external validation doesn't come or you're waiting you you can't wait for it to come and you have to actually decide it yourself and then it comes and then people you know um kind of reaffirm that to you so yeah it's absolutely fascinating isn't it yeah. and um and we've got a very special event which uh, a couple of weeks ago it was just a discussion on this podcast oh maybe we should do a little kind of i think we called it a spoiler episode was that yeah. right for yeah, yeah, i'm yeah, welcome yeah. well what's yeah. happened since well it's uh you know if you've seen the film Unwelcome, I'm sure you've got questions. And uh, we said, oh, we'll do a little spoiler special. I can answer questions. Well, I've been chatting to a few people. Now, these are all TBC because these are busy, busy people who might suddenly get work and have to rush off somewhere. But I'm hoping to get the director, John Wright. He's a big maybe because I know he's in the middle of something. He's very busy at the moment. Uh, our VFX supervisor, Paddy Eason, who's worked on some incredible films. Our cinematographer, Hamish Doyne Dittmus, who's worked on some incredible films. Our first AD, Terry Bamber. Uh, seriously, look Terry Bamber up. He's done bomb movies. He's a legend. Uh, the And the actor, Rick Warden, as well. Now, Rick, you think, well, I, I didn't see him on screen because Rick, you might know from Band of Brothers and HBO's Rome and, and Prime Evil and shows like that. You might think, I didn't see Rick on screen well rick was essentially our red cap wrangler i'll explain what that means on the evening so it's uh 27th of april uh it's 8 p.m british summer time there'll be a link in the show notes it's going to be on youtube it's going to be so much fun and if you've got questions uh we're well we're basically saying to again to academates and bxp supporters and, and patreon supporters they get to ask questions first but there'll be if you turn up on the evening you can ask questions on the evening as well Definitely. And listen, folks, if you don't want to miss that, I know it's hard when you listen to podcasts and you're like driving or you're you're out running or you're, you know, weeding, whatever you might be doing right now. I'd love to, I'd love to have a list. I'd love to be know what all you guys are up to. But <laughs> I know it's hard sometimes to kind of write all this information down or, you know, stop what you're doing. So what I will say is just go to the bestseller experiment website, click on newsletter. And we will be sending out reminders and details about the events that way. So if you want to be guaranteed to to not forget, 
uh, you know, make sure you go uh, and register now because that's the number one way of getting all the information you need. Brilliant stuff. Wow. I'm exhausted already, Mark. We haven't even started with our interview. <laughs> tell us tell us about today's amazing guest. Oh, boy. This is such a treat. Such a treat. And someone I've wanted to get on the podcast for a long time. Uh, Delilah S. Dawson is the New York Times bestselling author of <gasps> Deep Breath. Now, this list is just too long. I just can't get through this. But uh, among other books, Star Wars, Phasma, Galaxy's Edge, Black Spire, The Secrets of Long Snoot, The Perfect Weapon, Scorch, The Blood series. Uh all sorts of stuff, including lots of big IP. We mentioned Star Wars there and the, also the Minecraft Mob Squad series too. Amazing, amazing back catalogue. But Delilah has a brand new thriller called The Violence, which explores themes of women escaping domestic violence and reclaiming their power and pro wrestling. It's, it's an incredible book. It's, it is, is, is amazing. Uh, so we discuss writing as a compulsion writing for big intellectual properties like Star Wars and Minecraft, and tips for building a brand and sustaining a career. And there's a lot in this interview, folks. So sit back or maybe get a notepad and a pen, (laughs) whatever your preference. (laughs) But uh, sit back and enjoy this incredible interview with Mark Chatting with the absolutely lovely Delilah Dawson. Delilah Dawson, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? Very good indeed. Thanks for asking. And all the better for seeing you today because you have an extraordinary book out, The Violence. Now, I mean, you've had an extraordinary career, but out of everything you've written, this feels horribly timely, I think, and it it comes across as incredibly powerful. Tell us about The Violence and and where it's come from and what it's about. Sure. So um, I I pitched and sold The Violence uh, before COVID. Uh, we, We signed um, the, the, the contracts in like January of 2020. <laughs> so it was an interesting writing. I've sold it on spec. So I, I sold it on, you know, 20,000 words. So I had to write the rest of the book after I'd sold it. So, uh, you know, the first draft was based on that kind of first year of COVID. And then the second draft was after we'd gotten more used to it. So it had a lot of, a lot of revisions, but the violence is about a different kind of pandemic in which people, um, randomly with, with no warning whatsoever, kind of go flat affect. They are mentally not there and they become, uh, just brutish killers and they just bludgeon whoever is closest to them to death. Uh, and then they kind of wake up having completely forgotten it and go on. So, you know, it opens with someone in a a Costco beating somebody to death with a a thing, a thousand Island dressing (laughs) and just how things would unfold from there where the first person this happened to, you know, the police, throw her to the ground and start beating her and she can sue them for a million dollars. And like later people who got it, like they did not get that kind of uh, kindness out of, you know, you didn't get to sue people <laughs> later <laughs> on once they realized what it is. But I use this as a backdrop for a story about three generations of women breaking out of the cycles of domestic violence. So there's, you know, a mom who lives with, um, you know, that person whose life looks perfect on the outside, but inside she's trapped, you know, with a very abusive man uh, and trying to maintain appearances about her mother, who was a single mother who kind of had to raise her on her own and had to hold her at a distance because she had to work so hard to keep her alive and had been, you know, thrown out by her family. And then uh, also the the daughter, a teenager who is realizing that her boyfriend is showing some very troubling signs of, of an all too familiar violence. And then it's how these women use this pandemic to escape. And then there's also a subplot of uh, uh, semi-pro wrestling. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this there's some there's some very th- this book goes to some 
very dark places. Not to say it's not a page turner and it's really entertaining, which it is. But when you're in those very, very dark places and uh, how do you get through the day? Or or is it or is it a cathartic thing for you? Are you getting it out on out of your mind and onto the page? Oh yeah, this is therapy. It's very cathartic. Uh, there's an author's note for this book that lets you know this is the house I grew up in. This is the kind of violence I grew up with. And so it was important for me to show on the page that you know, not all domestic violence is, you know, a woman being uh, slapped or hit or pushed down the stairs. Some of it is um, a very wealthy, well-respected man strangling his wife because it doesn't leave any uh, any bruises behind and you can't mm. prove it. Mm. And everybody you both know thinks, oh, he's just so upstanding. He's such a good guy. You're so lucky. And you spend every night terrified, not knowing if it's going to be a good night or a bad night. Mm. Um, so a lot of those scenes are kind of taken from my life. Um, and then some of the other scenes uh, you know, violence against women in general is is a topic of the book, and they're you know based on situations that I've that I've been through, and uh, you know men that I have encountered. So it's very cathartic to put it on the page and use it um, to not only work through it and to be able to have some commentary on it, but a lot of the guys who behave badly in this book get murdered, <laughs> which is very comforting. <laughs> and look, you mentioned the pro wrestling thing. How does the pro wrestling thing fold into the the greater story? Yeah, that was uh so when COVID started, my husband and son had their very first tickets to see like WWE Big Smackdown or something like in Tampa. And they it was their first time doing something like that. And they were so excited and they like splurged on good tickets and they were so excited. And then COVID happened and it got canceled and no one ever reimbursed them and they were so mad. And I was like, oh man, so like COVID starts and we stop professional wrestling because of course you can't all crowd into an arena. Then you're like, but it, I could see like an underground fight club type professional wrestling getting something out of this because, you know, if we take that pro wrestling is is very skilled actors and amazing, mm -hmm. uh, amazingly built people with with great skills, um, you know, fighting and pretending to fight in a way that taps into, you know, our caveman brain, then <laughs> it's like, OK, well, COVID is one thing, but then the violence, you can pantomime these people going crazy and killing and it's a way for you know, the, the general populace in the ancient kind of Rome bread and circuses way to be able to watch that. And so it seemed like a fun way for this character who has nowhere else to go and no way to make money to get in on something interesting. And then through that, she's also able to work out some of her issues because, uh, you know, part of that is learning how to act. And part of learning how to act is having to kind of tap into your feelings. So it was an interesting, an interesting journey that, you know, started as a crazy idea that I know a few editors, when they read the, the outline, were like, uh, you know, this way you had me until the wrestling thing, but then an editor got it and she really got it. There seems to me that there's a lot of, um, because Chelsea in this, she's putting on a mask. She's got to be, you know, the perfect uh, uh, housewife. Uh, you've got wrestlers putting on a show, that kind of thing. But beneath it all, things, you know, things are rotten in Denmark. And you said that this was written during lockdown and COVID. Was it sort of driven by a feeling that, you know, we go on social media and we try and make out that everything's fine, but underneath we're, we're sort of crumbling inside. Or is that is that just too bleak? <laughs> um, it's more, you know, it, I guess social media does have it. It used to be magazines, now it's social media where you see, you know, the the perfectly beautiful, perfectly coiffed, made up woman in the gorgeous kitchen, like drinking her her tea and just you look and you think she's all at one in the world. And in this book, the woman doing that has just seen a piece of paper telling her that her bank account is overdrawn. And that she can't pay her mortgage, um, and we don't necessarily see that. So it is a a reflection on that, and also just how many women, you know, if you haven't lived through domestic violence, it can often be easy to say, "Why don't you just leave him?" And it's you know, you see through here, she lives in a very nice house, and she has nice clothes and a 
you know, special, you know, uh, anti-allergy dog. But underneath that is she can't leave. He's cut her off from her friends. She never really had much family. She hasn't been allowed to have a job or make money. Um, she hasn't been allowed to develop her skills. She got pregnant early, so she didn't get to go to college. She just had to go take care of him as he finished college. So bit by bit, she's had these different avenues cut off to where she left. Where would she go? What would she do? Nothing really. Mm. Yeah. Well, folks, do check out The Violence. It is an extraordinary read and had the most amazing reception. I'd like to go back to to where it all started. And I read somewhere you described writing as a compulsion, like an itch. So can I ask, how long have you been scratching? Yeah, so this one uh, is, is is kind of fun. I I didn't think that I was capable of writing a novel for most of my life. I was a big reader. Like, obviously, there's my, my bookshelves. Um, <laughs> but I thought that, you know, novelists were like, nuns or heart surgeons who like always knew what they were going to do and it was their calling. I didn't realize that kind of just anybody could just barf out a book. Um, but when my second child was born, he stopped sleeping. And so I was getting like three and a half, four hours of sleep a night and my brain kind of broke. I started hallucinating. And I went to my husband and I was like, just out of curiosity, do you hear the rats talking in the walls? And he was like, let's get you some sleep and you need a hobby. He was like, all you do is kind of sit around with these babies all day and you need something for you. And I was like, well, I'm a painter and you can't paint around babies because paint is poison. And I can't do this and I can't do that. And I can't leave the house. And he's like, well, you should write a book. All you need is a, a laptop and you can do anything you want. And my brain was so broken. I was like, yeah, okay, cool. All right, I'll do that. <laughs> and he offered to, you know, that first book, he was so good. He would take them to Target to walk around or to the park, or he would watch them at home so I could go to to Starbucks. And and so he's, he pitched in a lot of time to help me find that first writing time and get out that book. But it took a lot. Like the first time I was like, well, I don't know how to get an idea. And he was like, they're everywhere. And I was like, point to one. <laughs> so he committed that he would send me an idea every day and that, you know, it was my job to pick one. So the first one he sent me was, you know, a woman wins a cruise and something crazy happens. And I wrote back and I was like, I've never been on a cruise. I can't write about this. I don't know how a cruise would work. And he was like, you know, you're really smart. You could probably figure this out. <laughs> and I was like, well, I've been on a ferry. I've been on a ferry in Greece and it was a really bad experience. And he was like, great, turn it into a story. So my first book was about a woman who uh, went on a cruise in Greece and accidentally slept with Zeus and started seeing uh, mythical animals everywhere. You know, she would, so Hera got mad at her and she got chased. But so yeah, that was my first book and it was, it was terrible. Um, I learned, you know, your first book sometimes, uh, some people hit it out of the park. You might be a Rothfuss. I'm not a Rothfuss. My first book was hot garbage. Um, <laughs> I got 57 uh, rejections on it. And then finally a very nice agent said, you know, you kind of have some writing chops. It's clear. This is the first book. You made a fatal flaw for your genre. So my advice is to read Reuter in your genre. But if you ever query again, you can query me because I can see, you know, some potential, which I, so I stopped writing, I stopped querying that and started writing the next book. The next book got the agent and then the third book sold. Wow. That's amazing. What kind of time frame are we talking about there from the, the crazy nights with the baby to the <laughs> third book? Um, first book took like three months to write. I've always been pretty fast. Wow. Um, and then, you know, like, I think I did 13 revisions to it. I just kept trying to figure out how to fix a book. Um, and then the second book. So I probably queried that one, you know, for three or four months, I guess. And every time so I'd send out three queries and every time I got a rejection, I would file it away and send out a new query. And then I was starting to kind of run out of agents. <laughs> um, so I queried the next book, got 37 rejections on that one before I got uh, two offers of representation. Um, and then I was just starting to write Wicked As They Come. 
which the agent that I'd gotten was like, this sounds great. Write this book. So I wrote that book, took about three or four months. And then she and I took like six months to edit it because when you're, when you have your first agent and you're a very early writer, quite often you are not their first priority. So it took some time, which I totally understand. Uh, And then, you know, it, it went out on sale and I think within three weeks we had an offer and then she kind of leveraged that to an auction and it sold. So I guess it was probably a, maybe a year and a half, I guess, before, from, from writing the first book to to selling one. That's, that's pretty, pretty amazing actually. Um, like and, I said, it's a compulsion. I was doing it every day. Like this was. <laughs> well, that that was going to be my next question because you know what what was your writing habit? You were you were, you started out as a write every day person. Of course, the first book that we write as authors, we're basically learning how to write a, a book as well, aren't we? So hence yeah. all the revisions and every. But but we but you started by writing little and often every day. Was that it? Yeah, it it came to be like it's it was just always in my head. I'd be driving and I'd be thinking about the book. I'd be falling asleep and I'd be thinking about the book. I'd be nursing the baby, being like, "Fall asleep so I can type." Fall asleep. <laughs> um, so yeah, it got to be very um, obsessive for me. And I would uh, in those days, I was so driven to write that I would, you know, wake up with the baby and then I'd stay up for the next hour while he slept and write. And then, you know. I would, my husband would come home in the afternoon and he would watch them for, stay with them for an hour or two while I wrote. And then that night there was this beautiful time from like 10 to two when no one else was awake. And I would just be in the kitchen, my face lit by the screen, just typing like a mad person. <laughs> so I would, I would take every moment I get back then I would have a playlist for the book. And so every time I was thinking about the book, I'd have the playlist on. So, and I'd be thinking about the next scene. So when I sat down, there was never that kind of fear of the white page. It was always I know where I'm going. I know the scene. I know what's going on. I'm in the playlist and I'm going. Because you, basically, you're never losing momentum there, are yeah. you? I mean, you, and, oh, no. and the and the playlist because I I don't use them anymore. I'm just too old. I can't listen to music when I write anymore. Yeah. But when I was starting out, the playlist was an instant way of getting you back into the mood of that book. Is that how it worked for you too? Oh yeah, I would. Um, I still do this when I need to. I go on Spotify. I find one song that feels like the book. It's not like every word is the story or whatever just feels like the book. And then they have like a similar artist. So I'd go to similar artists and I'd go to each artist and look at their top five songs and just start chucking stuff in there. And, uh, you know, then if I found a song that was like, Oh, this is also really the book. I do the same similar artist. So it was kind of spider webbing out until I had 20 or 30 songs. But the only downside to that was that by the time I'd finished the book, writing it, editing it, all that, I never wanted to hear those songs again. Yeah. <laughs> For the most part. Yeah. So it, it got to be very like, this is like the locust thing. So you don't put a song you really love on there because after that, you'll just be like, I don't yeah. think I listened to The Cure's Disintegration for like a year after writing uh, my, my story for Cardi Punk, where I was just like, I think we've done this a bit much. But And then I learned, like, don't put your favorites. <laughs> it's very, very true. Very true. Pain sort of association with the pain of first drafts and editing. Um, starting out as a writer is, is hard enough as it is. Sustaining a career is even more difficult. And I, I saw a Twitter thread you put up the other day, and listeners, I'll, I'll put a link to this in the show notes, and it's just extraordinary, where you put a thread of, of your backlist, essentially, and you said- I think it's my pen tweet. So if you look me up, that should be my pen tweet. Cool, cool, cool. And it, it was essentially, if you like this, you'll like this. If you like this, you'll like this. And what struck me was the incredible diversity of, of what you've written. Um how much of that has been sort of planned, a strategy, or how much of it has just been, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll just write. I'll do, is there a, you t- talked about writing as a compulsion. Has there ever been any kind of plan? I mean, the plan, I knew when I was querying my 
my first book even that I was probably going to write in several genres because I like to read in several genres and because whatever idea I have, I don't want to be told, oh no, you're only allowed to write romantic suspense. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm going to want to do whatever I want to do. And I remember um, when the my first series, the blood series that starts with Wicked As They Come, when, when it came out and I was talking to my editor and she was like, you know, we need to think about branding. Because this was like 2011 when that was more of a thing. She's like, you need to think about your brand, your next series. And I was like, no. <laughs> like I was like, the next book I'm writing is, I think I was writing Summers of the Storm, which is like a Southern Gothic horror for teenagers. And I just had that sense of like, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to conform into this box. I know you would like me to. Um, so I, I came up with my, my website name was Whimsy Dark. Cause I was like, everything I write is on this little spectrum from whimsical to dark. It's all somewhere on there. That is the closest you're going to come to um, a brand for me. And, and I recognize now that, you know, it, it may not have been the, uh, the wisest economic choice, or, you know, if you really want to develop those, those 1000 diehard fans that they say that you really need, um, it pays to, with each book, you know, meet them where they are and with what they want, you know, like my friend, Chloe Neal, like, my God, I think she's like 19 books into a series. Mm. She's so amazing. Um, my friend, Kevin Hearn, who writes the Iron Druid series wrote nine of those, like there's some serious dedication there, but, uh, I learned I have ADHD. I don't, I don't <laughs> like doing one thing for too long. <laughs> so it's just kind of that this is, this is how I have to be. But I also knew from the start that uh, I was willing to take on as many pen names as they wanted. Right. Um, I, I don't have, you know, a whole bunch of preciousness attached to that. Um, and I've also had books over the years that haven't sold. I think I've written at least six or seven complete books in the last 10 years, either my agent and I couldn't come to grips with, or we took out and it didn't sell. And, you know, that's just what you have to kind of accept if you're going to, to skip around, but it does pay to, when you're searching for agents, look for agents that cover everything you want to do. And when you talk to them, let them know that, you know, this is how you, you see your your career. Cause I, I, I didn't plan much and it's gone in really interesting ways. Um, but, you know, for instance, I'm pretty aware that the vast majority of my star Wars fans are not going to read my middle grade horror. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, the people who like to kill the farm boy, the kind of Pratchett-esque humor of that are probably mm. not going to be really into my hit series about the teen bounty hunter and a bank owned America. And the fans who do come along all the time are like, they're my lifeblood and I love them. And I've like for years, I've just been like, oh yeah, Andy and Ellen. Oh, I love you guys. Uh, <laughs> but it's just, it comes with the, with the territory, just knowing like, this is me and this is how it's going to be. Yeah. Well, that's extraordinary. Just being able to say no at that early stage in your career, because I think the, the and I, I've done it, you know, the inclination when you're starting out is just to go, yeah, whatever you say, uh, agent, uh, publisher, I'll do whatever you say, just keep paying me to write books. But to be able to sort of say no and say, man, this is, I'm going to write whatever the hell I want to write in a traditional context as well. A lot of indie authors might do that, but, uh, well, I think that- I'm just not, it's, it's not a, a no is like a rebellious no. It's a, I'm just not capable of that. Like there's just right. some things I can't do. Like, I, I'm not going to get up on stage and sing and nobody wants that and you can't make me do it. (laughs) (laughs) With all these extraordinary projects going, you must be incredibly uh, busy, particularly with um, the, for want of a better phrase, the IP projects, the Star Wars is and, and and the things that are, you know, the Minecraft and what have you, uh, which often need to be delivered really quickly to a very detailed brief uh, or exacting brief uh, to, you know, uh, on, on schedule. How how are you turning those around so quickly? And do you have any kind of tips for time management or, or doing more than one project at a time? Or 
You're grimacing. Well, um, you grimaced when I, mean, I said time thing, management. Have, have, a, have a great agent who helps with right. this. Um, my agent, Stacia Decker, is incredible. And so whenever I get an offer for an IP project, she'll be like, okay, well, here's all the due dates you have so far. It looks like you can slip it in here if you can get it done in a, you know six weeks or whatever. Um, so she's super helpful for that. Um, and I also kind of usually have a, a list of what needs to get done so I know what I can or can't do. It also helps that um, lately... All of my books almost have been with Del Rey and various bits of Penguin Random House. So it's not like I'm hitting an Orbit editor against, you know, yeah. a, a Saga editor. It's they're all kind of in-house and they all want, you know, to raise that boat and contribute to each other. So, you know, it's like with my Minecraft, my Minecraft editor also helps edit for Star Wars. So he's like, oh, well, I know that you have this due here, so we can do this here. And so they'll plan the books, you know, with enough time. So it's not like I have Star Wars coming out a week after Minecraft. Mm. Um, so I guess the answer there is have people with better time management skills and better organization around you telling you what to do. <laughs> um, and, and also, you know, with, it's like you said, with IP, we often have a crash schedule, which means, uh, you know, I might have six months. Own, I might have six weeks to write a star Wars book. It's its own skill. So people who want to write IP, I always try to tell them, doesn't matter how much you love it or how great your story idea is. If you can't turn around a hundred thousand words in six weeks that are very high quality that you'd be proud to show anyone then you either need to really work on developing that skill and that speed and that kind of confidence, or you might need to, you know, work in a different realm. Um, because not only do you have to edit or outline really fast, pitch really fast, write really fast, revise deeply really fast, but you're going to get um, a lot of, you know, constructive criticism more so than you would have for your own books because they're protecting their IP, protecting their world, protecting their characters. Um, so you really have to be kind of thick skinned and flexible and recognize that, you know, that editor is not insulting your writing or your ability to write hot solo. They're your partner and they're giving you, you know, a, um, a cheat sheet to level up and write the best book you can. So once you have that more collaborative feeling of like, oh, this is my buddy and they're helping me versus, oh, this editor is holding me down. They put yeah. me in a box. Then, you know, it, it helps a lot more to have that, uh, that collaborative feeling. Fantastic. And when you're doing something like, say, um, Phasma, where you've got a character who's kind of supporting character in the movie, how much freedom do you get to develop that and put ideas into that character? Or do they come to you and say, these are the things we want to include? This is the story that we want to tell? How detailed is that brief and how much freedom do you get? I mean, it definitely depends on the IP and the character. Um, for Phasma, this I was tapped to write this book right before The Last Jedi, so they knew that she was going to die. I don't think she's dead, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so they knew that they wanted a story more about her history because the books usually serve the movies. The movies mm. are kind of the, the the planted pillar, and then the books are kind of the ivy twining around them. They aren't allowed to change major things in the movies. Um, you know, you're not allowed to do a big reveal in the books, that sort of thing. So if you're ever reading a Star Wars book, and like the author should have said this and this, like they wanted to, and they were told no. Mm. Um, so with Phasma, I had a great deal of um, a freedom because it happened, you know, between the movies and it was her backstory about growing up. So, um, you know, we kind of developed together that we wanted like a Mad Max Fury Road meets Star Wars feel. And I got to create a lot of that on my own. And then like anytime I brought in Hux or another character like that, they were a little more, you know, Paying very close attention. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I had to, I tried to get Kylo Ren in there and like, no, no, he's somewhere else doing something else. And it was like, okay, I don't get to put that toy in the toy box. That's cool. <laughs> um, and then for like Black Spire, it was different because the book was, you know, the story of, of Vi, who they decided to use in the park, in the park. So I had this 
you know, 169 page PDF that you couldn't search through it. That was all of the information that was available um, on the Disney park that I had to kind of figure out how to write the story around. So that one was a very different project than anything I've, I've ever done. Um, and then I'm, I'm writing a Star Wars book now that's that's also got a different thing, too. So, yeah, it very much depends. And then Minecraft was just like, write a story in Minecraft, go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they really care about the game mechanics for that. You know, I wasn't allowed to, uh, like, you weren't allowed to, you know, write a chicken in Minecraft or, you know, whatever. The things you can't do in Minecraft, your characters can't do. But otherwise, I had tons of freedom in there. Brilliant. The Black Spire one, uh, did you write that before the park had opened? Yeah, so I wrote it before the park opened, and then they were kind enough because I, I was they, they were getting close to opening day, and I was like, I know stuff has changed. Can you please just give me one day there? Because I'd asked to come. I lived in Tampa at the time, and I was like, I can be in Orlando in an hour and a half. Like, if anyone will walk me around, if you'll even just show me the model, if I can just look at that, like, I'll be there in an hour and a half. I probably won't get a ticket. I like, I'll do anything to see it, and you don't have to do anything nice for me. I just need to run in the back door and look. And they were like, nah. But they invited me to the opening night um, <gasps> at Anaheim. Wow. My my two editors and I got to go to opening night in Anaheim, and so I got to. It was it was incredible. That's the that first one. George Lucas was there. Um, Mark Hamill was there. Uh, Harrison Ford was there. It was crazy. Wow. And so we got to like walk around, and then I had exactly one week <laughs> to turn around <laughs> edits. Where anything you wanted to change to this manuscript, you do it now, and then like it's a solid drop date. You can't after you turn it in, you don't even have two hours. Like it's gone. Uh, so that was really helpful because there was like I got to speak to the Imagineers. I had a, this amazing call with the Imagineers, and you know, my first question was, "What does it smell like?" And they were yeah, like, yeah. "What?" <laughs> and I was like, "Well, you know, Pandora has this Pandora smell. It smells kind of blue and oceany, and you know, there's a different smell when you get over to the animal parts of Animal Kingdom that smells kind of like that musky, uh, you know, African elephant smell, and then like." Disney World has, you know, like the churros, like everybody has a smell. What's your smell? And they just like, they had this deer in the headlight looks and they're like, oh, roasted meat. <laughs> That's all they could think of. They hadn't pumped a smell in there. It just smelled like, you know, Ronto Roasters kind of pumps the meat out. And I was like, okay, roasted meat, cool. But it really helped to actually get there and, you know, try Katsaka's kettle corn and try the blue and green milk and all that. So Star Wars smells like a barbecue. Excellent. If you're standing near the Ronto roasters, because it's a it's a pod racer engine that the the droid is turning a spit over with meat on it, so it's kind of in the way that like barbecue restaurants pump out the meat. This is where they're like, come get some meat. Well, and when you when you're given that six weeks in which to write an IP novel, I'm, I'm guessing you're just are you targeting yourself with the word count every day? Is it is it like your own personal NaNoWriMo? I mean, every day is I, my, my process is I try to write two to 3000 words a day, like basically one chapter. Um, and then I'll you'd start the next chapter and write one or two sentences. So I know exactly where to start. And then if I'm like really on fire and loving it, I might write two chapters, especially towards the end as things hit that kind of climax. I'll, I'll sometimes write five or 10,000 words a day. If I'm really in it, cause you've got that like, Oh God, I could be done with this. Like, <laughs> very exciting. Um, it'll roll downhill but generally i aim for two to three thousand words a day uh one full chapter amazing amazing stuff and, and, and you've written ya you've written fantasy you've written middle grade you've written in all these extraordinary categories and genres and intellectual properties what's on the wish list is is there something that you still want to tackle that you haven't i mean it's i i would like i i can't think of anything but then every time an ip like so ip doesn't just you know call you up and be like do you want to write this? They call you and say, 
we think you'd be a great fit for this project. It's like out of all the world, they're like, you, you would do this well. So it's very flattering. And it's also like, they've looked at what you can do and have made this good match. So it's very rare. You know, they're not going to call me and be like, we want you to do a princess, lay a strategy diplomacy book. Like no one wants that from me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I can't write an Alexander Freed book. I can't, I can't, I can't do Alphabet Squadron. So when they call me, they're like, we've got this female villain that kills everybody. And I'm like, man. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, if a project comes in and it's a good fit, then I'm usually really excited. It's that old, you know, it's either a hell no or a no thank you (laughs) is typically how that works or hell yeah or no thank you. (laughs) So I don't know. Like I didn't, I didn't know if I wanted to do Minecraft, but I agreed to the call and they explained the, what they wanted at the time. And I got pretty hype about it. So I pitched it and I did not get that pitch. And I was like, but you, you took me from zero to a hundred and I'm back at zero. (laughs) Like this was an uncomfortable feeling. And then the next week they were like, would you like to pitch something else? Uh, and I was like, all right, okay. So then I, you know, came up with Mob Squad as, you know, the 80s Goonies Monster Squad kids crew in Minecraft. And they liked it enough to do their first series. So you just never know what's going to what's gonna strike you, I guess. So, you know, it's, I'm always interested in, in hearing what's out there. And if it works, I accept it. And if it doesn't, then I can't. I, I tell you, the one that got away, I was pitching a Transformers uh, graphic novel because my family's big into Transformers. And this was right when uh, every all the buyouts and changes happened at IDW, and it was one of the contracts that got dropped. And it's just it, right. it hits me in the heart. So if somebody came to me because James Roberts, more than meets the eye, Lost Light comics are my favorite comics of all time. So that's my kind of like one day I'm going to get my Transformers. One day, hang in there, hang in there. Yeah. Um, before we we wrap things up, I, I read somewhere that you learned an important lesson about character from wrapping boxes. Can you tell us about that? Oh man, what was that? I don't know. What was it? I got the mind of a goldfish, man. I don't. <laughs> I saw. I mean, this. is it just? Oh, okay. I'm guessing it has to do with when I worked in the gift shop and yes. we had to wrap everything in yes. uh, brown craft paper. Yeah. And you start to realize with that hard paper that you can't force that paper to do anything. You have to find the place it wants to fold and help it fold. Yeah. Um. Because if you just force it, it'll never work. So I think character is definitely like that, where you can't force them, but you can you can guide them. Is that it? That's the one. Sorry, to, right, spr- okay. sorry to spring that on you, Dylan. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's a challenge from past me. What's that? What's in the immediate future? What's coming next? Well, I'm working on uh, Star Wars: Rise of the Red Blade right now. My inqu- my Inquisitor novel about uh, the and the red. She's red. Her name is Iscat. So that's that's all we know so far. Um, turning in revisions on that. It's out in July, so I believe we'll be having that at San Diego Comic Con. Anybody's going there, you can get. Uh, a signed copy or whatever. Maybe there's something more. Who knows? Um, I have this year, I have two more IP books that haven't even been announced that are supposed to be out this year. Wow. Um, I have a young adult <laughs> magical romance based on the Tempest in a Las Vegas magic hotel uh, that's called Midnight at the Houdini that should be out this November. Um, next year, I've got a women's horror uh, called Fever of the Spirits that will be out with Del Rey. It's kind of like my, it's the one following up to the violence. So it's, it's, you know, one of my kind of bigger adult, uh, me owned book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right now I've, I've been writing some, uh, some stories for DC. Um, I've been writing the character Red Canary for some of their, uh, Lazarus Planet and Dark Crisis. So if you're reading those and you see Red Canary, it's, it's probably me. Um, I think that's, that's, is that, is that all? <laughs> Oh, I also sold um, a novella that'll be out around Halloween called Bloom that uh, I'm very excited about. So it's my first horror novella. Amazing. 
Amazing. Just extraordinary. Well, Delilah, it's been a joy speaking to you. Thank you for taking the time because you probably could have written a novella in the time you've spoken to me. So uh, I owe you one. But uh, thank you so much for this. And folks, The Violence, uh, it is an extraordinary read. Do grab a copy right now. Uh, You won't regret it. And uh, Delilah Dawson, I hope to speak to you again real soon. You too. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. I think, Mark, we should dive straight in, straight into that question of the craft paper. I'd never heard of that analogy before, and it's absolutely Uh, brilliant. First of all, it was really unfair of me to drop that on Delilah because when I looked it up, she did it. She mentioned this in an interview with Chuck on the Chuck Wendig website in 2012. So that's over 10 years ago. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes, uh, but it was so unfair of me to drop that on her. But I'm just going to read from, from what she said. She said, a long time ago, I worked in a gift shop that was known for fancy smancy gift wrapping. On my first day, I was nearly brought to tears by a cardboard box and a roll of craft paper because no matter what I did, my wrapping looked crappy. My manager told me this, paper wants to fold a certain way and you can't fight it. You have to find out where it wants to fold and help it do that. By that afternoon, I was rapping like a pro, which is probably the dullest thing ever. But I think characters are like that too. Each character wants to be a certain way and will flow naturally in that direction. When I get stumped, I often have to backtrack and see if I'm trying to force a character into a direction they wouldn't go or put words into their mouth, which is why the next step doesn't happen organically. If you let the characters be exactly themselves, it will shine through. So that... Delighted. I mean, that's a fantastic lesson on character. Do not try and bend them into a shape. This happens particularly if, um, I mean, I used to find this when I when I was a big outliner. When I would outline stuff, I was thinking, well, this is what's got to happen next because it's in the outline. They've got to cross the threshold or, you know, deny the call of adventure or whatever it is. But actually, I was trying to shoehorn characters into doing things just because that's what they were expected to do. And I think you need to leave room to allow characters to develop and and blossom into something unique and wonderful, which if you're, you know, if you do, you surprise yourself. And if you surprise yourself, you surprise the reader. And I think that's a hugely important lesson to learn. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? It makes me think about how it's sometimes important to follow your character with it rather than trying to lead it. And uh, that can lead to all kinds of interesting journeys and surprises, which you, you might never dream up as well if you try to kind of force, like, like in the same way, force the character into a situation that maybe isn't natural for them. Brilliant. Such a lovely analogy as well. I think it's, uh, if anyone's, I mean, coming from someone that took a long time to learn how to rap, and even now my skills are not, I wouldn't say pro. I'm, terrib- <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely terrible. I'm going I'm to learn from this. When I, was a, when I was a bookseller, the only time I snapped at a customer was when someone at was here. This someone at you Waterstones. A customer mark. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Waterstones. I think they still do. They used to offer free gift wrapping. So, and it was in plain purple paper, and it was out the back in the unpacking room. So, you'd, so people would say every now and then, "Can I get that wrapped?" And you'd go out the back and you'd wrap it. But you were backstage. No one was standing over your shoulder, and there was usually one person in the building who was really good at wrapping and would do it and put it in a little golden bow or whatever. And then one Christmas, some smart ass at head office said, you know what? We should put it on the shop floor where everyone can see it. And I was like, no, 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 don't do that, because wrapping is bad enough. Making it a public sport, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's even worse. So I'm, I, I'm wrapping, and books, 
They're not difficult. They're rectangular. But then you, when you get two or three of them, it gets a bit tricky. So I'm wrapping and I'm folding something. And this fella's breathing over my shoulder. And he was like, do you want some help with that? And I just turned around and raised my hand and said, do you want to do it? <laughs> Brilliant. You yeah, put your back. finger here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, bless him. I tell you what, though, yeah, nothing like being under pressure. Ra- oh. Yeah, rapping shouldn't be a public sport for sure. No, I mean, it's the, the rapping and I could think of a few others, but brilliant <laughs> stuff. No, I love that analogy. I also liked as well what um, Delilah talked about with regards to the, the idea of getting into writing as a hobby. I know a lot of people have, I know a lot of people have this dream of like they, the, the dream of becoming a bestseller, the dream of becoming this massively successful author you know looking at your favorite author and thinking oh i wish i could have that life and so often people get into writing because they're chasing that dream which i think is brilliant and i'm all for that but i also love the fact that you know it was like right what what should i do then i can i could paint but that might kill the kids with the toxicity (laughs) or writing writing works got a laptop got a got a got a a notepad and it's true isn't it? it it's it's one of the few hobbies when you think about it it's one of the few hobbies that can fit around almost any kind of lifestyle. Like if you're a crazy busy parent and you don't know quite when the kids like, I, I know people at paint, for example, and they have a studio set up. You know, I, I love to write music and have my studio and I, I, you know, that's hard to do when you're wait, waiting for whether, you know, a child's going to wake up from a, from a nap or not, but writing, you know, even if you snatch a paragraph, I remember early season one, I remember talking to a parent who said, my the time I get my best writing done is when I get to school ten minutes before the bell at the end of the day, and I sit with my laptop on my on, on my lap. Funnily enough, and they they write they bash out like you know two three hundred words, and then the kids come out of school and that's their writing time. Well, do you remember it? we did we did an episode on the gingerbread prize, which is a prize for single parents, and we had people they were writing on notes on the bus on the bus to work, you know. So, I mean, it's hard. Let's not pretend it's, you know, it's hard, but it can be done. But it can be. It's a hobby that you can fit around anything else that you're doing. I mean, hey, you can even do it on the toilet, folks. You know, I mean, I know we know there are people out there that do that as well. No photos. (laughs) So, yeah, no photos, thanks. Um, But I think it's really important to remember that as writers, we're really lucky that it can fit around the lifestyle. And I think that's why so many people write because, I mean... Yeah, like you think of, I mean, pottery, like I imagine you can't just go and do pottery for two minutes I mean, no. it's like, a, you know, or anything else like that. So I think we should all be grateful despite the challenges of it. We should be really grateful that we can make it work. And, and what I also love about Delilah's story is it started as a hobby. There wasn't necessarily this idea of I'm going to become this incredibly successful author, but that can happen as well, which it did for her. Well, you know, I mean, started as a hobby and then she discovered this. She just had this skill set that is, I mean, what a phenomenal, you know, career and what a phenomenal uh, writer she is. So, but yeah, it came, you know, it, it came, she said her brain was broken and she said, yeah. But what I love is that her husband sent her an idea every day. Oh, I mean, wow. Brilliant. Wow, okay. talk about support, to, you know. I think we have we have certain badges of honors. We we give out trophies and awards on this show. And as soon as I heard that, it reminded me of the Julie episode as we Angela as Angela Marsons. Angela Marsons and yeah. it's her partner um, Julie who supported yeah. her. Yeah. And there was a couple of others since then yeah. as well. These partners had, have been incredibly yeah. supportive. But this is brilliant. 
writing prompts, story writing prompts every day from your, <laughs> from your partner. Yeah. <laughs> what a brilliant idea. So we're going to officially um, award um, uh, Delilah's partner uh, the the pseudonym of Julian to go with Julie. <laughs> so you've either got a Julian or a Julie in your life. We want to hear about them, by the way, folks. If you have a Julian or a Julie, that is a partner who is incredibly supportive and goes way beyond way beyond the call of duty to support you in your writing efforts. We want to, we want to honor them on this show. So give them, give them a name drop, Um, drop us a note, go to the website, click on the contact us or pop us a message on social media and we will give them a shout out because you know what? They deserve recognition. They, they need to be held up high because it's the supporting cast that makes the film, isn't it, Mark? Right. At the end of the day. So, um, I think it's brilliant. And, and we want some more examples of, of like the types of things that partners have done to support and encourage you, maybe even convince you to keep going a bit like um, Stephen King's wife did after she pulled Carrie out of the, out the, the trash yeah. waste, waste basket. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the amount of crazy stories out there that we love. Um, but also I think a partner can help you through those really dark days of rejection as well. I know a lot of partners kind of prop each other up when difficult things are happening in their life, but 57 rejections for the first book and then 37 for the second book. I mean, we're always pushing a hundred rejections there in two books for, for Delilah to keep going and to then see what happens. That's the bit I love to hear yeah. the success story. It's quite mind blowing, isn't it? Yeah. And I, you know, we hear people, you know, in the Academy and in the VXP group and they say, I've got six rejections. It's never going to happen. It's like, we've only just begun. Yeah. The fact that she was <laughs> running out of agents to contact. Is that, that's, that's for me. That's like once, sign. <laughs> once you've done But once you've done every single agent, then maybe, yes, you can start. But the point is, is that it's the rejections aren't about your book not being good. Your rejections are about your book not being right for that particular agent. And it's so important to remember that. It's not like they're saying, I'm rejecting it because I've made a decision that it's no good and therefore no one else will believe in it. It's just about remembering that it's not right for them. And that's fine. Move on. Thank you very much. I'll, you know, you can you can hear me on the bestseller experiment in a few years talking about how, how my career panned out because I kept pushing. So I want to encourage people. If you're worried about putting stuff out there because you're worried about rejections, that's a very big, big hidden fear. If you dig down deep, folks, you're probably under the surface. If you've not put anything out there yet, it's probably because you fear rejection. And that's very valid, but you've got to do it. Just absolutely get it because it's a bad badge of honor and celebrate with us when you get those rejection letters. But for the people that you know are going through the process right now, which there will be many, many people right now, like maybe you got a rejection letter this week keep going like hang on to it put it in that folder with the other ones and and enjoy and toast the moment when someone believes in your work or it's the right work for them and none of those rejections matter at the end of the day when you get your final publishing date deal whatever it might be that comes your way so keep on going keep on going Mm, absolutely the other thing I wanted to check on, Mark, was you said this great line, actually. I'm going to quote you, actually. Oh. Uh, you said the first book is about learning how to write. Yeah. And I've never heard it put like that before, but it's so true. Mm. It's, uh, you know, when you sit down and do this for the first time, so much of it is, one, I, I remember sitting down to write properly. I'd written plays. I'd written sketches. I thought, I'm going to write a novel. And then I sat down and thought, do I even know how to construct a sentence. <laughs> I start thinking, I'm not sure I do, actually. And you you start getting tripped over by, you know, the basics. But 
you know, as we always say, just plow on, get your head down, just write, 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 write. But going through the process, and I don't just mean that thing of writing a sentence, writing a chapter, writing characters. I mean that process of getting to the end, going back, revising it, getting feedback on it, getting it edited. That All of that process is a massive, massive learning curve. And it's essential that you take your time to go through it and treat it as a learning curve because the odds of your first book getting published are pretty st- – it does happen. It does happen. I think we've got someone coming in a few weeks where that happened to them. Uh, but it's it's pretty slim. So go in in there and enjoy yourself and learn and treat it as a big learning experience because you'll take all of that, everything you've learned from that, and you'll take it on to the next one and the next one. I, I never stop. I don't think I ever. I don't think I've ever written a, a book the same way twice, I, and I, I hope that I never stop learning because I think the day that I do, I stagnate. You know. Well, we have to remember that life is a the whole journey of life is a learning process. We 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 learn from our mistakes, and hopefully we we don't make them a second time. But the the point is is that it's it's an evolving organic process, and it's the thing that I think is so fascinating about the art of writing is that there's always something new to learn, mm. and I think a lot of them. A lot of people's misconceptions come on this idea of learning how to write is because we all typically do a language at school and usually our yes. English if you're English speaking or Spanish if you're in a Spanish speaking country. And so we have this conception, this idea that we've we've learned to write at school and we have. Obviously, I mean, you know, for people that can 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 write sentences, they learn to write. But what I didn't realize when I f- first wrote, you know, and tempted a book was that it's a it's a whole different experience it's a whole different set of rule bases there are things that we don't learn everything at school i mean goodness me think about how deep things are i mean really when you look at it like if you look at school we used to have english what a couple of hours a week maybe mm. when you actually add all that up over a lifetime of a school it's not it's not a huge amount of time and i wonder here's a weird question i wonder whether when you write your first book you spend almost as many hours writing that book as you spent doing English at school or Spanish or whatever your language huh. choice yeah. was. I wonder if it's similar. And it wouldn't surprise me if if it's not that far off in terms of intense kind of like focus. And then you take away all the times so you like flicking notes to your friends and messing around. <laughs> and then the supply teacher comes in and it's like, well, here we go, fresh meat. You know, I mean, when you actually look at like the quality amount of time we spent learning at school, but that is the basis Absolutely. But the thing that I learned is it's a whole new level. It's a whole new world. Once you, it's like someone opens this door and goes, welcome and come on in. And you're just like going into this vast space of like infinite possibilities. And, and, and then you have to decide what genre are you going to write? And, you know, and it just, it, it just becomes more and more fascinating as the deeper you get into the rabbit hole. So embracing I, I, it, I think is so important. Absolutely. I think it's what trips a lot of people up. They they think, oh, I did this at school so I could do this. Or oh, I wrote, and, I did creative writing or I like to yeah. write stories. Yeah, I wrote, exactly. I wrote a nice essay in the sixth form and the teacher said it was good, therefore I'm a writer. And it's like, well, that that's kind of the primer. You know, if you're going to do this, you need to throw yourself into it. And that's, it's not just about writing, it's about reading as well. I think you need to be a good reader. I think, you know, you know all those essays, those comprehension essays uh, that you wrote, you know, those were, those were important primers in terms of getting you to understand how 
writing works, how fiction works. You take it apart and you look at it and you go, oh, okay, so that's a metaphor. Okay, that's oh, that's sentence structure. Oh, that's that's character development. All of those things allow you to take apart and pass, you know, all the elements of of a novel. And uh, so reading is hugely important as well. So this is. You know, it, we were saying earlier, it doesn't require a pottery wheel. You don't need to learn your scales. You don't need to plug in any MIDI modules or whatever. You know, if you want to play music or whatever, you can just pick up a pen and a paper. But it does require a certain amount of commitment. So when Delilah's telling us that she's writing from 10 in the evening to 2 in the morning when no one else was awake, just so that she wouldn't lose momentum. I'm not suggesting we all do that, but you know, it's important to carve out a bit of time where you commit yourself to this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I couldn't let this pass, Mark. The topic of music came up and the idea of playlists, playlists Mm. for writing. And again, we talked a bit about this before. I know that we've discussed it a lot in the Academy in terms of like finding the right kind of music. Um, And I found as well, it can be hugely inspiring. Like you get any kind of music which is relevant to what you're writing. And this is the important bit. Um, so what I thought would be quite fun to do, and I'm going to, I'm going to set this up for when this episode comes out is, um, so the music that I write is kind of like, it varies. It's a lot, there's chill out. There's kind of like up-tempo dance. There's kind of romantic love kind of songs. And like, I'm going to go to our Spotify, um, Spotify account, Urban Myth Club, and I'm going to create to time with a 200 word challenge. So I'm talking about 15, 20 minutes of music. So like maybe four or five tracks. And I'm going to see how many different styles of writing I can come up with by mashing together different types of music. And so if you want to try this out, I'm going to, I'm going to get it live for Monday. Go to um, Spotify if you're on Spotify and type in Urban Myth Club. That's the name of my band. And uh, and it'd be interesting to see. Give me some feedback about what works, what doesn't work. Um because I think it's, uh, I, I've not seen people do writing playlists for writers. I'm sure they're probably out there, but I thought I'd give this a go as a little, a little bit of fun to put out for all our listeners and uh, supporters. That's a great idea. That is a re- now, um, can I be cheeky and ask you to put it on YouTube as well? Because I know a lot of writers use YouTube for their background music too. Ah, uh, that's a good point. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe so we should it. do the YouTube Spotify playoff test. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be cool. Because I, as I said to Delilah, I don't do playlists anymore. I used to. But and particularly when I was commuting, I was on the train. I needed to block out. You needed noise. to block out the noise, yeah. And particularly if you're, you know, if you've been writing and you have to get off the train and go to work, and then you need to get back into the mood immediately. That was really, really handy. So when I interviewed Delilah, I said oh, I don't really do playlists anymore. But, but I've recently got the rights back to the end of Magic, which means I'm writing a sequel which means I've now got to get my headspace into something I wrote four years ago. <laughs> so so I, I I did have a playlist for The End of Magic, which, again, I can't really listen to, but I had specifically, there's um, the game Skyrim, which is, you know, uh, epic. And uh, this is, because um, I know there's all different versions of it and blah, blah, blah. But this, this is a 45-minute track called Atmospheres, which is just wind going by birds rushing the you know things just background atmospheres with occasionally bits of music kind of creeping in but kind of ambient music and it's absolute and it's boom i'm back there i'm, I'm back in that universe immediately yeah that's the thing is it's the triggering isn't it that anchors oh, it's, it's and music has this incredible anchoring and i think that's the thing again we talked about snatching time to write i think a playlist can be a way of just instantly getting you into that writing zone when you haven't got the time to kind of like do a stretch and a warm up. And it's interesting that you're now using 
you know, you're going back to music to get you back into that world yeah. and you're, and you're instantly there, aren't you? It's, I can Absolutely. see it. That's great. So what's the, the sequel is, um, is it going to be themed along the same idea of end of magic? Yes. It's called drum roll. The end of dragons. End of dragons. Very nice. Yeah. 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 I Very see a little, I see so a little far. kind of theme starting to evolve. Oh, there, you might see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure if it's going to be two books or three books. I'm basically making notes at the moment. I'm getting to know the characters again. Uh, I've got an idea at least where the second book goes, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's really great to be back in that it, world. I was going to say, it must be nice jumping into a different world. I mean, you're writing series of certain in a certain kind of world, and yeah. To be able to jump back to an old world, it, it's probably good for both series in many ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's very different as well. I mean, the end of Magic, there's a lot more violence and swearing and stuff like that. So I'm like, hee hee, I can really get, get off the leash. Uh, so yeah, it's um, it's good fun. Really That's fun. brilliant stuff. Excellent. Well, listen, folks, if you would like to join us for the extended edition of this podcast, we have got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about the importance of how you sustain a career as a writer um, writing in multiple genres, uh, collaborating with an agent, building your brand, getting diehard fans and writing in a pen name. We're going to cover all of those things. We're also going to deep dive a bit into this idea of writing for IP. And I must admit, you know, when I first heard the word IP many years ago, I was like, what's that? And, um, there's a film, isn't there? Something about some, some Eastern, what's that film with the karate? Something about Ip or something Ip like man. that. Ip Man, oh, thank you. Great, right. great so, films, fantastic so I'm like, what, films. And what's all this about? But for anyone who's not aware of it, IP stands stands for intellectual property, and it's the idea that you know, like Star Wars has intellectual property, which you they hire authors to write books around. So it's a really interesting area. We're going to talk about um, the importance of uh, you know how to write for IP and the importance of what you have to actually do in order to kind of be in that game. And it's a you know it's a, as as we heard from Delilah, it's a big ask. So folks, if you're interested in joining us, please pop along to um, bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support sign up as a patron or if you're in the academy you're going to get access to the extended version as well and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you on the other side so mark tell us what's happening on socials this week Oh, wonderful stuff. So, uh, well, over on the Academy, let's start with Karen Story, uh, who has a good news story every week now, I think. She's just rocking it on the Academy. Uh, but she says, although most of my writer friends have used beta readers, I haven't done this before. With my last novel, I had it read and appraised by a few writing mentors before subbing it to agents. Uh, and then after I signed one, he helped me with uh, edit and polish. But with this new manuscript, which is nearly finished, I've had no other eyes on it yet. Uh, she says, apart from, because I, I, I read three chapters for a one-to-one with me, which she found helpful. Uh, so she woke up this morning and something niggled at her. And she said, part of the story set in Wales. She's got Welsh characters. She's been there many times, but she's not Welsh. Her agent isn't Welsh. What if she's got it wrong? So she sent messages to three contacts who are from and still live in Wales. One's an author friend uh, with a, an, an MA in creative writing. One's an online friend. And they, within an hour, all three of them said, yes, they'll be honoured to read it and give advice. They said, aren't people incredibly wonderful? Now, this is, you know, this is a big step for anyone if you're showing your work to someone for the first time. But, you know, if you are writing anything, anything outside of your regular experience, it makes such a huge difference just to get another set of eyes on it. Because it's, it's they're not going to be saying to you, oh, you've done this wrong. They're going to be saying, this is what you do to get it right. And it makes such a difference, such a huge, huge difference. So congrats on that, Karen. And um, it's all it, all it will do is make your book better, absolutely better. 
Um, and again, in the uh, in the academy as well, uh, and we have a share your wins section in the academy. And William Group got in touch. He says, "I have not just one." but two wins. First, I submitted my second book, Unworthy, for pre-order. Great title, Bill, <laughs> and stuff. It's taken me almost exactly three years to get the next one out. But the second, my library is celebrating local authors and asked me to part- be part of a panel discussion with two other authors. We're a very small town, so I'm not holding my breath for a large show, but looking forward to the experience. Now, William has arrived, doesn't he? Local library author event. That is that is fantastic. Um Brilliant. And Unworthy, I love Bill's books. They're really good fun. I've had the honour of, of working on a couple of them. So I'm going to put uh, a link in the show notes for that so you can check out uh, that for pre-order. And on the BXP group, uh, wonderful news from Tanya Scott, who writes as T.E. Scott. Her third uh, wronged women's cooperative novel, which is a, a Scottish cosy mystery, is called Romance is Dead. The third book in the series is out, Romance is Dead. It's out now. Big congrats to Tanya. And and she put it up there, and already she's got a five-star review on Amazon on there too. I'll put a link in the show notes for that so you can check that out too. So congrats uh, on that, Tanya. And last but by no means least, on the, on the Academy, Chris Everhart, uh, what Chris has done, he started his own YouTube channel. Uh, he says, I've started my YouTube channel based on my book of writing experience and inspiration. It's not fully developed, but when a friend asked me to help start writing, I figured it was better to get started than to try planning to make it perfect with five episodes in. It's two blokes talking about writing. What could possibly go wrong? So, Mr. Stay, apparently you just said, what could go wrong whilst I was rebooting my computer? I don't think that's ever happened in six years of the podcast. My computer just died. Blue screen look, of death. I, I was looking I was looking at all the, all the wonderful uh, wins on social media. I'm looking at a screen. I say, what could go wrong? And I look up and you'd vanished. <laughs> and I'm there going, oh, my gosh, my computer just died. Well, it happens, folks. It's brilliant. You know, welcome to the world of technology and... Uh, yeah, podcasts, they say never work with kids and, and technology, which is a bit hard, difficult in a podcast. But it's a bit, yeah, but yeah, isn't that brilliant? But we're back. It seems a beauty we're of back. the magic of the seamless cut. And I'll put I'll put a link I'll put I'll put a link I'll put a link in the show notes to Chris's YouTube channel so you can check that out. Hopefully it's a bit more professional than ours. <laughs> brilliant stuff. Brilliant. Well, listen, folks, thank you so much for sharing all of your wins. Keep on going. We want we, we hear more and more great stories each week. So if you've had a great win that you'd like to share with us at the best seller experiment then pop along to the website go to the contact tab and enter a message for us tell us about your wins that you want us to celebrate with you or about your julians or julies in your life that support Mm. you whatever it might be for you and uh, if you'd also like to get the newsletter do make sure to sign up remember we've got some great events live events coming up and some great new episodes coming out so pop along to the website and click on newsletter that's bestsellerexperiment.com and click on newsletter to subscribe to our weekly updates and on social media, uh, on Facebook, we're Bestseller Experiment. And Twitter, Instagram, we are at Bestseller XP. Come along, say hello. Tell us what's going on in your writing world. And the 200-word challenge, if you want to get the writing habit of a lifetime, it's 200wordchallenge.com. And if you're wondering what this talk about the Academy is, well, you can find out more by just simply going to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com where you will get Mark as uh, two of us as your coaches each week. Um, and and so so much more so do check that out as well folks so brilliant have a great one mark i look forward to chatting with you next week yes and indeed. i'll definitely be here no blue screen <laughs> it's goodbye from mark one <laughs> goodbye from mark two for, for real this time <laughs> bye bye
I went a bit bungle there, didn't I? G-g-g-bye.